This is a sobering passage, our Father. And we ask that as we come to it, that you would soften our minds and hearts to hear the truth of it. And particularly this morning, Father, would it excite in us a passion for your glory. Might you be revealed in a fresh way to us in this passage. Might we, might we see you in new ways, new depths, new perceptions, with greater clarity. And Father, as much as possible, would you take the finiteness of our minds and expand them this morning so that we might, might know you and know your truth more fully. And so would you guide us as we consider these truths in these verses, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. In homes with children, especially with young children, there is an oft-repeated repeated declaration that particularly reveals the theology of those young children. And it is a simple three-word three phrase, it's not fair. I thought you would join me in unison. Let's try it again. It's not fair. Anybody ever heard that in their house? Oh yeah, well some of you are just reluctant to raise your hands, but yeah, we've heard it, haven't we? When dad receives a larger portion of ice cream at dessert than the four-year-old, it's not fair. Now, interestingly, when dad takes more broccoli at the supper table, you don't find that complaint in that instance. When an older sibling's bedtime is extended, it's not fair. When a younger sibling receives a more expensive gift from grandma at Christmas time, it's not fair. When a child doesn't get to start for his baseball team at the playoffs, it's not fair. When a friend who doesn't study as much as your child gets a better grade than your child does as a final grade for the class, it's not fair. When a teenager doesn't get a, an anticipated promotion at work or a scholarship for university, Dad, it's not fair. And with every it's not fair, that child is revealing his theology. Now what he thinks he is revealing is, is a, a standard of perfect righteousness and that he, he is attaining and striving towards perfect righteousness. But what he is really revealing is not a standard of righteousness that is exalted, but he's actually revealing a theology that asserts that he is to be the Lord of the universe and that in all things, in all places, at all times, he is to be the center of that universe. Everything is for his glory. And that, that child needs to have his basic belief system realigned to the truth. And it is a wise parent who will gently, graciously, carefully, unrelentingly help him understand that truth. In a very similar way, there are common protestations against God, His sovereignty, and His salvation. The theological term for these protests is theodicy. It is a question about the righteousness of God. So theos, God, dikaios, righteousness, theodicy, the righteousness of God, and some questioning 
that in light of what we see in this world, can God really be righteous and fair in doing what He is doing? So people look at our world and they see suffering and they see evil and they see the Scripture speaking about hell and they, they see the Scripture speaking about God's judgment and God's condemnation and they say, in so many words, it's not fair, God isn't righteous. And Paul addresses that very concept in Romans chapter 9. And after asserting God's divine elective purposes in salvation, God's choosing who will be His in salvation, he addresses two questions, two protests, two it's not fairs, if you will. The first of them is given in verse 14, in which Paul says, There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. So he's, he's there addressing the question, is God unjust and unrighteous in choosing those who will be his? And the second objection that Paul addresses is in the passage that we want to begin looking at this morning, and that is in verse 19. And it is the question, if God sovereignly chooses and if God sovereignly hardens, how can he condemn anyone to hell? It's not fair. We might summarize what Paul will conclude this way. God's divine election is just, and God's condemnation of sinners to hell is just. In everything that God does, in His elective purposes and in His condemning purposes, God is fair, God is right, God is just. And Paul addresses this issue about theodicy, the righteousness of God, with two questions. And we're going to see the righteousness of God revealed in Paul's answers to two questions. The first of them is given to us in verse 19, and it is the question posed by man. Man questions God. Is God's condemnation right? Is God's condemnation right? Notice what Paul says Verse 19, you will say to me then, in light of what we have revealed about, about elections, there are some who might say this, why does he still find fault? And, and, and the, the idea of finding fault is the idea of finding blame or, or scolding or used in this particular instance, it's not just finding blame, but it is why does God still find fault to the extent that He will condemn sinners to hell? How, how can God choose who will be His? How can God harden those who are not His and justly send people to hell? Is God unfair to render sinners guilty of sin and condemn them to suffer from His wrath if they have not been sovereignly chosen as recipients of His mercy. If, if God hasn't chosen them, then how can He justly send them to hell? And, and, and Paul expands that idea with a second question in verse 19 that echoes the first, for who resists His will? And there he's pointing back to what he has said already in verse 18. Notice verse 18. So then he's summarizing what he argued against the first objection. So then, the summary is, he has mercy on whom he desires. And that word desires is actually a word that's typically translated will. 
So he has mercy on whom he wills. That is, he has mercy on whom he has decreed to have mercy towards, whom he has willed to have mercy towards, and he hardens whom he wills. And if God has willed and God has decreed, it is also true that we understand verse 19 that no one can resist his will. That is, no one can stand up against the will of God and say, um, time out, you're not going to do, God, what you say you're going to do. I can, I can change what you have decreed to happen. We know that if God has decreed something, no one can resist that. Not only can we not object to it, we can't change it. And if we can't change his will, then the objection is, How is God fair to condemn some to hell? That's the question that the apostle will answer in verses 20 and following. But just before we get to the answer, I want you to just understand for a minute and reflect on the fact that that these arguments are common. People regularly chastise God and regularly repudiate Him for His lack of righteousness. They, they don't understand God's calling to condemn the, the nations in the Old Testament and they don't understand His lack of love in consigning people to hell and they don't understand the existence of pain and suffering, particularly as they, as they look out and they see young children suffering and, and, and in cancer wards and, and the seeming injustice of it. And they say, God... God must not care. God must not be good. God God must not be in control. It's not fair. It's a common argument. In fact, after the first service, somebody said, "I, I felt like I was back in philosophy class in college 40 years ago. And the very same arguments that were that were being made in this text by the Apostle Paul about objections to God's fairness, those were the very same things that that professor was saying 40 years ago, though... Praise the Lord, God came to, it came to a different conclusion through Paul's pen than my philosophy professor did. These are always the objections against God. It was the objection 40 years ago, friends. It was the objection in Paul's day. It was the objection in the Old Testament. It's the objection today. And the argument goes something like this. If God is all-powerful, then He can prevent evil. And if God is good, He would want to prevent evil. Evil exists. Ergo, God must not exist. Or God must not be good. Or God must not be all-powerful. God God cannot overcome evil, has chosen not to come overcome evil. And so God must must not exist or be good. As Dan Phillips has pointed out, the argument really is something like this. If God can do anything He wishes, He would prevent evil if He wished. If God is good, I can't think of a reason why He would not prevent evil. Three, evil exists. Four, therefore, I don't know why God might choose to permit evil. The issue is not that there is not an answer to the issue of evil. The issue is that man might not understand it on his own apart from Christ. The problem with the arguments against theodicy is that the lesser is challenging the greater. In fact, the least is challenging the greatest. The ignorant is challenging the all-knowing. The fool is challenging the supremely wise. The guilty is challenging the judge. 
And that is exactly where Paul will take us in his answer in verses 20 to 23. Man questions God. Is God's condemnation right? There's a second question starting in verse 20, and it is God questioning man. It is God questioning man. And it is, it is interesting to notice as you read verse 20, the objection in verse 19 is, it's not fair for God to condemn sinners to hell if He has willed who will be saved and if He has willed those who will be hardened. Verse 20, Paul does not answer the objection. On the contrary, who are you? And so instead of immediately addressing the issue, Paul essentially says, I know your question, but you're asking the wrong question. In fact, truth be told, you don't even have a right to ask the question that you are asking. You don't have a right to raise this objection because, my dear friend, this is God to whom you are speaking. God stands in judgment of man. Man does not get to be the judge of God. And that is exactly where Paul begins, where God begins of his questioning of man. And that's in verse 20. Who is man? Who is man? We, we read in verse 20, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? But it's interesting the way Paul constructs this sentence The word man is actually the first word in the clause and God is the last word in the clause. And so we might read it this, read it this way. Oh man, on the contrary, who are you who answers back to God? And, and Paul is setting in direct opposition to each other the manhood of man and the Godhead of God. And both with the structure of the sentence and what he says in the sentence, he wants us to feel the weight of I am a man and I don't have a right to object to the works of God in this way. Paul would have us to remember who man is. And and just just for the sake of, of memory, just think back to what the apostle says about man in this letter Chapter 1, verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So, so it is the nature of man not just to push back against God, but to push back and, and push down and try to hold down His truth. They are resistant to it even though the truth keeps coming to the surface. They will be relentless in their attempts to squash the truth of God. Even though they knew God, verse 21, chapter 1, they did not honor Him as God. They didn't give Him glory or give Him thanks. But they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. They did not want to glorify God. They did not want to thank God. Instead, they wanted to be glorified and they wanted all thanks to come to them. They engaged in all kinds of sinful activity. And not only did they engage in it, notice verse 32, though they know the ordinance of God that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is the nature of man. That he pushes down against the righteousness of God. He wants himself to be exalted above God. And he not only engages in sinful activity, but he gives hearty approval to the sinful activity that's engaged in culturally. And so it is that Paul will conclude the section about man in chapter 3 and say there is none righteous, not even one. 
There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. For God, All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. So that, verse 19, every mouth may be closed and the world may become accountable to God. Every man is unrighteous on his own and every man is accountable to God. God is authoritative over man. Man is not authoritative over God. And and notice that the Apostle says in this passage, not only does he want us to think about man in relationship to God, but he says, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Who are you who, who protests to God? Who are you who speaks back or who talks back to God? And, and if you're a parent, when I was a parent of small children, one of the things that just... I'm using this euphemistically and not literally, but one of the things that drove me crazy was my kids talking back to me and especially to their mom. When I'd walk in and they'd be in the middle of a debate with their mother... I mean, like all my arms and legs and everything just kind of fell on the floor. I became unglued. Okay, now you got it. Who are you? Who do you think you are talking to? Would you talk to me that way? Then why do you talk to her that way? And that's essentially what the Apostle is saying here. And, And notice that this has not been intended to be a conversation. God has not said, here's my decree, and by the way, tell me what you think about it. This is a one-way conversation. God hasn't invited our response to it. God hasn't invited our evaluation of it. He has decreed it. He has willed it. Who are we to speak back, to object to God? What we must understand is that man is exceedingly low and God is exceedingly exalted. We come to passages like this and we need to think like John the Baptist. He must increase. I must decrease. We come before God and His truths and and we must submit to them. Our intention is not to evaluate the will of God and the purposes of God. Our, Our intention is to submit to them and to follow them and to heed them. We are, as George Whitfield says, little impotent men. We have no capacity, no ability to debate with God, and we have no right to argue with God and His intentions. In fact, Paul will illustrate that when he says in the middle of verse 20, the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? The, the, the pot that's molded by the potter has no capacity to speak back against the potter who has made it. And in the very same way, Paul says, we don't have capacity to speak against God. And Paul here is introducing this idea that we saw in Jeremiah in verse 20. He is quoting and alluding to Isaiah chapter 29 and then Isaiah 45. We also see the same principle in Job. And he's pointing to the fact that the man has no capacity, no ability, no right, no authority to object to the purposes and plans of God. In fact, when he asks the question, the thing molded will not say to the molder, he is anticipating a no answer. No, the way he constructs it, there's only one thing to say, no. 
The thing molded cannot say this. And the problem with the question, why did you make me like this, is not that someone might ask for information. It's appropriate to ask for information. And and we're going to see that actually, that, that Paul does give us the information that we might need to understand this later in this section. But... But the problem here with the question, why have you made me like this, is it's not just a question for information, it's an objection, it's a rebellion, it's an attempt to usurp the authority of God. A man has no right to do that. I, I, I first chuckled and then I cringed when I read what the commentator William Hendrickson said about this verse. Listen to what he says. The answer rebukes the questioner for his impudence and his imbecility, for his shamelessness and for his senselessness. The objector who calls into question God's justice is therefore impudent and arrogant. He forgets that that if that which is molded has no right to say to its molder, why did you make me thus, then all the more human beings have no right to thus address their sovereign maker. The objector is stupid. Now, he's blunt. He's exactly right. It is folly to speak against God in these ways. This verse is so reminiscent of what we find in other passages when when people attempt to object to God. Listen to, to chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Uh Uh-oh. Right? Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements? Since you know, or, or who stretched out the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Where were you at creation, Job? If you, if you deign to, to diminish my justice, if you ascribe injustice to me, Job, if you say you are more just than I am, let's, let's go back to creation and find out where you were. And for two chapters, he unrelentingly pounds Job with questions to help Job see his finiteness and his inability and his, and the unrightness of his objections to God. Chapter 40, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. Then Job answered the Lord, And said, Behold, I'm insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken, I will not answer even twice, and I will add nothing more. You're right. I give, uncle. And then the Lord answered, 40, verse 6, The Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me, Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? And for two more chapters... He pounds Job with questions. It is for us to understand that we don't have rights, position, authority, wisdom to question God. God is not answerable to us. We are His creation and we are answerable to Him. 
And when we whine and complain like the men of verse 19, we are attempting to place ourselves on God's throne. And He will not share His position. He will not share His glory with anyone else. We are created by Him. And our position is to submit to His will, not attempt to overthrow His will. Now, it's important for us to remember our position before Him. We are low. He is exalted. At the same time, it is true that God has endowed all created men with His image. That's Genesis 1. We're made in His image and His likeness. And, and at the same time, Psalm 8, He has exalted us above the rest of creation and, and made us a little lower than Himself. So we have a tremendous position. That is true. But at the same time, friends, even though we are exalted above creation, there is a vast chasm, an infinite chasm between us and God. And Paul would have us to understand this. The question is not, is God unfair to condemn? The question is, who are you to object to God? There, there's another question that, that better answers what the objectors might be asking. And that's given to us in verse 21. Doesn't a sovereign God have rights? Notice verse 21. Or, or does not the potter have right over the clay? So here he's continuing this whole image about the, the potter making the pot or the clay vessel. Doesn't the potter have right over the clay? Doesn't he have authority over the clay? Doesn't the potter have the right, the authority, the will to make what he makes? And in fact, there he's taking us back to Jeremiah 18 that we read earlier. And, and, and God's point to Jeremiah after Jeremiah had seen the potter spinning what he was spinning on the wheel and then recreating something that had failed... God's point, verse 6, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. It's my right as the Creator to choose who will be mine and to choose who will not be mine. It's my right. It's my authority. And at the same time, as we see the emphasis on the authority of God in Jeremiah 18, did you also capture, did you also notice the extension of grace in Jeremiah 18? So he says in verse 7, at one moment I may speak concerning a nation or a kingdom, or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, to destroy it, and if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. I'll relent. If you repent, I'll relent. There's grace, there's kindness, and and he warns the people of Israel in the same way. The people of Israel who who are underneath the judgment, the discipline of God, and he says, Behold, I'm fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each one of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. Turn back, repent, and I'll relent. There's grace even in the midst of God's will and His sovereign purposes. Now, what often gets missed in this whole discussion about the lump is the truth that the lump is not a righteous lump. Notice what he says, verse 21, Does not the potter have a right over the clay 
to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for common use. When he, when he grabs a piece of clay out of that large lump of clay, he is gathering a vessel, a person, that he is going to make for honorable use from a lump of clay that is unrighteous. That's not a morally neutral lump of clay. That's not a morally righteous lump of clay. That is an absolutely immoral, unrepentant, God-hating, rebellious lump of clay. And out of that clay, he makes some that he uses for his glory and for his honor. God is, God is not making from that lump of clay common vessels who are sent to destruction. He is not making them something different from what they were. He is simply keeping them where they already are. They are already rebellious against Him. They are already angry against Him. They are already attempting to usurp his position and his throne, and he is simply keeping them in the condemnation into which they were born. It is not unjust to keep them in their sin. It is not unjust if he is not gracious to them. Says one writer, All are guilty before God. That's everyone in the lump. We are all guilty before God. No one has a claim on His grace. If He chooses to extend His grace to some, then others have no ground for arguing that He is unjust because He does not extend it to them. Listen to this. If it is justice they demand, they can have it. You want justice? Okay, I'll give it to you, God says. I read that sentence this week and I immediately thought about the story told by R.C. Sproul numerous times about when he was a young professor and, and uh, teaching one of his first classes in seminary and uh, the students were turning in their first paper of the semester and they all turned in their papers except for Johnson. And he asked Johnson, Johnson, where's your paper? He said, I'm sorry, Prof, I didn't have it. Our kids were sick. And I think this is the way it went, something like this. The kids were sick, and and I actually was in the ER all night, and I just didn't have time to get it done. I, I promise I'll get it in as soon as I can, okay? If you turn it in in two days, I'll accept your paper. Oh, thank you, Professor. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Second paper's due like four weeks later. And this time there are like five or six people that don't have their papers. Oh, Prof, you wouldn't believe it. We just had so many other assignments that were due and all the other professors were, were, were making assignments and exams and papers due this same week and we just didn't get to it. Okay, if you turn in your paper in two days, I promise I'll, re- I'll accept it and read it. Third and final paper is due four weeks later and this time like three quarters of the class doesn't have the paper. Oh, prof, we'll get it to you eventually. You don't have your paper? No. F. Ah! That's not, they all said, fair. That's not fair. That's not, that's all right, Prof. We, we promise we'll get it in. Did you, did you turn it in today? No. F. Prof. We just want what's fair. You want what's fair? Yes. Hey, Johnson, I seem to remember you didn't turn in the face first paper. Is that right? Yes. Okay, you get an F on that one also. 
That's fair. Oh, friends, God is not doing anything unfair here. He is simply executing His justice against those who are rebellious against Him. And if He chooses to make some who stay in their unrighteousness against them, that is not unfair. It is wholly just. Listen, the wonder... The wonder is not that God keeps some as common vessels. The wonder is that He takes from that massive lump of rebellion and turns some into honorable vessels. The wonder is that He takes common clay and makes it uncommonly beautiful and worthwhile. The wonder is that He makes the ignoble noble and the inglorious glorious. The wonder is that He makes sinners into saints and that He makes sinners into the conveyors of the treasure of His eternal and infinite salvation. Oh, friends, we should never get over the wonder of Second Corinthians chapter 4. I think about this verse probably every single week. But we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. Friends, we're just simple vessels. We are nothing. We are nothing in ourselves inherently, and God in His astounding grace has chosen to take some who were destined for hell and not only grant us life, but then give us the gospel that we can convey the gospel to others. You should never tire of that. You should never be, you, you should always be overwhelmed that God has not only saved you, but made you a conveyance of the treasure of the truth of the light of the gospel of Christ to those who are dying and going to hell. Oh friend, Our sovereign God has a right to act just as He wills. There's a third question that God asks of men. Isn't judgment a demonstration of God's just purposes? Isn't judgment simply a demonstration about God's just purposes? Here in verse 22 and verse 23 The apostle is really providing information for those of us who might genuinely want to know. We're not objecting. Verse 21 is written to the objector. If you're objecting, let me cut it to you straight about your position. You have no right and you have no position to ask and you are remaining where you are because that is God's justice. But now in verses 22 and 23, he peels back the truth and gives us understanding for what what's really going on in the Godhead in this process of election. And it is a demonstration it is a demonstration of His just purposes. When God elects and when God condemns, His just purposes are being revealed. Notice, notice verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known? What's interesting about that little phrase, it begins with an if, and as you read it, you're anticipating a then. 
but the net then never shows up. So he starts it, but never finishes it, though it is clearly implied. And where it is implied is, is in the purposes that he is accomplishing in his condemnation of men who are unrighteous. Notice, notice also he says, what if God, my translation says at this point, although willing, and that's actually one word, it's the word willing, and there's a question about, about how Paul is using that word willing. Um, it could be that he's, he's using the word willing as something like a concession. So God concedes in some way, and that's certainly possible. I think it's actually better to take it as a causative. So, so God is causing something through the working out of His will. So we might translate it this way. What if God, because He is willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known? And what we find here in these verses, verses 22 and 23, are three purposes that God has in the condemnation of unrighteous sinners. And the first is, His purpose is to reveal His power so that He might demonstrate His wrath and make His power known. My friends, when, when God condemns sinners to hell, it is a way for Him to assert not only His right to do it, not only His authority to do it, but His power to do it. He is powerful to condemn sin for all of eternity. He is powerful to hold men who are in rebellion against Him in eternity, in hell for all eternity, and they cannot escape His wrath. In fact, Revelation 12 tells us that the Lamb stands watching over all those who are in hell for all eternity. He's, in a sense, on guard duty, continuing for all eternity to pour out the power of His wrath against sin. When God judges sin, it demonstrates that He is powerful and victorious over sin, and that sin does not rule, sin does not reign. God is authoritative over sin. God is not overwhelmed by sin, but overwhelms sin with His justice. And friends, in the world in which we live, that should be a great comfort to us. Sin doesn't win. You you go outside these doors, and you go to your favorite news website, you pick up a newspaper, and it looks like sin wins. Every day. It looks like sin wins. I cringed when I read this morning, the headline on the newspaper, about five people being killed in Midland, Odessa yesterday by another gunman. This morning, saw a news flash, it's not five now, it's seven. And it just looks like sin wins, doesn't it? The perversity of our culture, sin wins, no friends. God is powerful. God can And God will exert His power and His authority against all sin and all sinners, and He will prove victorious. His purpose in judgment is to reveal eternally His power. His purpose in judgment also is to reveal His patience. Notice the end of verse 22. What if God, because He was willing to demonstrate His wrath and make His power known endured with much patience vessels of wrath 
prepared for destruction. Because he wanted to demonstrate his power, he withheld his wrath with great patience. Patience is not just patience towards hard things. It's patience towards people. And so when Paul uses the word patience, he's pointing to the fact that God is exceedingly patient and suffers long the indignities that man through man men throw against him and withholds his wrath though he would be right to pour out his wrath against them in fact the first moment that anyone is born he is born as a sinner and god would be right to pour out his wrath and he almost never does And the first time anyone ever willfully sins, God would be right to pour out His wrath. And He almost never does. In fact, God endures a mass of sin against Him. How many sins have you committed against God? Not just just overt actions, but how many thoughts... How many rebellious desires? How many self-exalting and prideful quests have you contemplated in your mind? Tens of thousands we have committed. And for everyone in this room that has committed tens of thousands of sins, God has been patient. It's not just that He has withheld against tens of thousands of sins. He has withheld against an infinite weight of sin. Because every act of rebellion is an infinite act of treason against God. And he's withheld his wrath. It is for good reason that the apostle said he endured not with some patience, but he has endured with much patience. Oh, friend, the Lord is patient and kind. He does not love to see the guilty punished. He loves to see the guilty turn to Him in repentance and faith. Listen to what, listen to what it says in uh, Ezekiel chapter 18. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 23. God says this, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. I would rather the wicked repent and turn away from their sin. I have a longing for them to come to me and re- in repentance and believe on me in faith. And, and in case we don't understand that in verse 23, he says it very clearly in verse 32, Ezekiel 18:32. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. The Lord is waiting. The Lord is longing. The Lord is desiring for you, if you are in rebellion against Him, to come to repentance. And He is patient for the purpose of you coming to repentance. It's that very thing that Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Do you think lightly of the riches of His kindness and tolerance and patience? Do you, do you just assume, well, that's just the way God is. God has to be patient. 
God doesn't care about my sin, not knowing, Romans 2, 4, that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. Well, friend, if you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are not a Christian, God has not poured out His wrath on you as an act of patience towards you. He could have. He could have demonstrated His power already against you. And He has withheld to show you just how patient He is and to give you an opportunity to respond to Him in faith. And friend, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, I urge you, I compel you, you must respond in faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that Christ died on the cross for your sin, that He took the wrath that you deserved, and that He imputes to you when you believe in Him a righteousness that you cannot earn on your own. Oh friend, if you are not a believer, don't assume that God doesn't care. He does care. He is patient but He is not eternally patient. And He will pour out His wrath on those who reject Him. If you don't believe, you must believe. His purpose is to reveal His power. His purpose is to reveal His patience. There's a third purpose given to us in verse 23. It is to reveal His glory. How do you know... How do you know the greatness of your salvation? How do you know that your salvation is beautiful and wonderful? How do you know the beauty of heaven? How do you know the sweetness of fellowship with God? Friend, we can only understand the full magnitude of what we have been given when we see it in comparison to that which we have been saved from. I had a small glimpse of this a a few years ago. I was unpacking a box of of toys that my parents had given me, toys from my childhood. And as I was unpacking that box of toys and and kind of reminiscing, I came across a little slip of paper about this big with some handwriting on it. At the top, it had a little stamp, Sears of Roebuck and Company. And it was from the early 70s. And as I read on it, I saw inscribed in a hand, baseball bat, baseball. And I saw the date and I remembered the ball and the bat that were given to me by my father. It wasn't a birthday, it wasn't Christmas, it was not a special day, it was just one of those I love you gifts. And I remember, I remember playing with that bat and ball, I remember the park that we typically would go to, dad would throw, I'd hit, my little brother would run. Because that's what little brothers are for, in part. And we played and played. I, in fact, I, the ball is long gone. I still have the bat. You can come to my house. It's somewhere buried in my closet because that's what I do. I keep things. So, so that bat is still there. I treasured that bat all those growing up years. When I saw that slip of paper, I treasured it more. Because I saw the price and then the total at the bottom. It's 1971. Baseball, bat, and ball. Three dollars and something cents. You know what stopped me? My dad charged it. I asked him about it that week when I talked to him on the phone. And he confirmed what I thought. He charged it because he didn't have the cash. Three bucks for a ball and a bat. And he didn't have it. But he was willing to take on a debt to give me something gracious. And while I always appreciated that bat, now I really appreciate it for the sacrifice 
that went behind it. Friends, that is, that is the smallest inkling of what's going on in verse 23. Why does God pour out his wrath on sinners? He did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. How will you know the beauty of the diamond of salvation that you have been given except it is pressed against the blackness of God's wrath from which you have been saved. If everyone is spared from salvation, if God just throws up his hands and says, it's okay, I'll just let it go, then he is not righteous and he is not holy and he is not merciful Because mercy is only mercy when we have been spared from something. And when you have been spared from hell, and some are not, now there's mercy. If there's no wrath, if there's no condemnation, then there's no mercy. Friends, we we get a little glimpse of the magnitude of just how great God's mercy is when we see His unrelenting wrath against those who suffer in hell. And when we receive this mercy, it should produce a continual and ongoing act of humble praise in gratitude. Why me? Why, why, why would God shower me with mercy instead of wrath? It's what mercy does. It's what God's love does. And that's what He would have us to see in this passage. Oh, friend, never get over the magnitude of God's mercy and that He would choose you and that He would use you. In this passage, the Apostle wants us to understand God in a new way. He wants us us to understand and reflect on and delight on the character of God in a fresh way. What have we learned about the character of God in this passage? We have learned that God is not like man. He is separate from us. We are fallen and fallible and He is unerring and true. He is not like us. We have learned that God is sovereign and by that we mean He is authoritative. He has a right to choose who is His and He has a right not to choose others who will not be His. He is powerful to redeem. He is powerful to condemn. He is in control of all things. And he has a right to be in control of all things. We have learned that God is wrathful. But God does not delight to pour out his wrath against sinners. But though he does not delight to do it, he will. And friends, just a side note. If God doesn't delight in it, we should not delight in it. 
You will probably pick up your newspaper this week sometime and see about somebody dying, and it is someone who is a known opposer to God, and you will surmise that that person is in hell. That should bring you no gratitude. It's a grief. If God doesn't delight in it, if God grieves over it as it were, it should grieve us as well. We have learned that God is patient. He is slow to exercise His wrath and His anger. He endures infinite offense from us before He acts with His wrath. He is amazingly and astoundingly patient. We have learned that God is merciful. He longs for us to repent. He desires men to repent. He is glorified when men repent. And He loves to withhold His wrath and extend the gift and grace of salvation. And then finally, we have learned that God is glorious. How do you know that God is glorious? You know that God is glorious when He saves us from sin. But we only understand the magnitude of that salvation when it is pressed against the reality that not all are. Oh, friend, have a grand and glorious view of God this morning and His magnificent grace demonstrated in His sovereign election of us. Our Father, we thank You. We certainly can do nothing to attempt to prove our worthiness for what You have given. We simply and humbly marvel at Your amazing mercy and grace. Thank You, our Father, for a grace and elective purposes that redeem sinners of whom we are some. We thank You in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen.